Today, I want us to think about warning signs. We hear a lot about all kinds of warning signs throughout life. Doctors tell about warning signs of health issues. Economists forecast warning signs about recession. Scientists talk to you about the warning signs of a global warming effects. And counselors caution us about relational warning signs. Ignoring or misreading warning signs is actually disastrous. Last year, my wife told me our beloved V6 Honda Accord had an engine oil you know, light came up. And I, self-appointed auto mechanic, I said, That's, just pour more engine oil. That's it. And drive. And she did. And then engine uh, overheated. And then we took the mechanic. And mechanic told me it was a water pump problem. And by then, engine was ruined. Today, in our eighth study of David, King's Tragedy, I want to show you the warning signs of disaster through the character study of David's son, Absalom. Absalom was the third son of King David and his fourth wife, Makkah, daughter of Talmai, king of Gashar. The name Absalom literally means father's peace. You know, Ab in Hebrew is the uh, father. You know, Abba, daddy, is from Ab, and Shalom. So father's peace. But Absalom's life was opposite of a peace, as he was totally against his father. When Bible talks about the David's tragedy, two people stand out. One was Bathsheba, and the other was Absalom. And Absalom's story covers most of David's tragedies, from chapter 13 of 2 Samuel to chapter 19. And as we saw so far in the 2 Samuel, David experienced many pains due to his sin and guilt, such as he lost his infant son. He was shocked by his oldest son raping his half-sister. And he also you know, saw his youngest son killing his older brother. Among all these afflictions, Absalom inflicted the deepest pains to David. And last week, we saw Absalom killing his half-brother and crown prince Amnon after two years of premeditation, and then he fled to his mother's country and became a political exile in east of Jordan. And when Joab, David's commander, saw king was uh, feeling really bad about the whole family fiasco and the kind of missing Absalom, Joab engineered a scheme to bring back the troublemaker back to the Jerusalem, and David went along with the Joab's suggestion and allowed Absalom to return. Today's story took place after Absalom returned from exile. So let's read 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 25 to 33, and we read responsibly. So I'll read and you read the following verse. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him. He would weigh, and his weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Three sons and daughters were born to Absalom. His daughter's name was Tamar, and she became a beautiful woman. 
Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king, but Joab refused to come to him, so he sent a second time, but he refused to come. Then he said to his servant, Look, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has a barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house, and he said to him, Why have your servant set my field on fire? Absalom said to Joab, Look, I sent word to you and said, Come here so I can send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Gosher? It would be better for me if I were still there. Now, then I want to see the king's face. And if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king and told him this, and the king summoned Absalom. He came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king, and king kissed Absalom. Flowers fall, grasses withers, but the word of God endures forever. Today's story tells us what happened before Absalom rebelled against uh, his father in chapter 15. So this interlude between his return and rebellion is actually a telltale sign of a warning, warning signs, telltale story of a warning signs. And these warning signs of a disaster are relevant to us, especially Americans in 21st century, because we see the same warning signs in our culture, in our soul, in our country. So today I want us to reflect on warning signs of a spiritual disaster through three things in this story. The three key words are hair, fire, and kiss. Hair, fire, and kiss. And I pray that God help us detect these spiritual signs in our warning signs in our life as well as discovering God's saving grace. So let's look at the first thing, the hair. The first thing the Bible tells about Absalom was his hair. And boy, he have an awesome, extraordinary hair. Look at the verse 25. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it, and his weight was a 200 shekel by royal standard. 200 shekel is about five or six pounds. That's a lot of hair. I don't know how much hair your hair weighs, but it seems like it's a lot. And personally, I don't know why he cuts his hair only once a year. You know, I cut my hair, you know, every, every month. You know, I suspect that it's more like a stunt, public stunt, publicity stunt. Like our celebrities, you know, they're showing up in some event that has nothing to do with their, you know, their, their job, right? Just keep their brains alive. Now, there are several people in the Bible that describe as a handsome. For instance, Moses was described as an exceedingly handsome as a baby. Joseph was described as well-built and handsome as a young man. David, when he came into the, you know, when he appeared in the Bible, he was a ruddy and handsome, and so was Daniel. But no one was more handsome than Absalom. Absalom was an absolutely best-looking guy, according to the Bible. 
for no one in the Bible was described with a fine physical appearance more than Absalom. So if Absalom was born today, he would be modeled for Vital, what is it, Vital Sassoon, you know, Pantene, Head and Shoulder, all the shop companies, right? You know, they, 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 you know, they will be out behind. I mean, they will, they will try to get, you know, recruit him. And he would be cover of a People magazine as a sexiest man alive every year. He was simply the best-looking man from head to toe. And his sons and daughters were also handsome and beautiful. So can you imagine their Christmas, you know, card? It's like a model family studio photo that you will leave on your, you know, uh, refrigerator door even after, you know, long time after the Christmas. You know? Now, why was his hair and some handsome appearance a spiritual warning sign? What's wrong about looking good? Listen to me. Reason is this. The first and only thing that the Bible describes Absalom positively was his physical appearance. First and only thing Bible described positively about Absalom was his hair and his physical appearance. His look, especially his hair, was his pride and joy as the people praised for it. Ironically, we see later in the story that Absalom was killed because his hair was tangled in the tree in the battle. You know, as someone said, Absalom had a hang up with his hair, and he was hung up with the hair. And that's how he died. You know? You know, looking good is not necessarily negative. It definitely is a blessing. Who doesn't want to look, you know, bad, right? Every time I go to Korea to visit my nine-year-old's mother, I all, you know, my, one of my concerns is how am I going to fend off or her, you know, uh, one of her, you know, plea for me to see a dermatologist. Because she wants her six, you know, her old son, youngest boy of a family to look good. So she, every time I go there, she wants to send me to the dermatologist and the this and that and, the, you know, I have to create the schedule perfectly to fend off. And uh, actually, one time, you know, uh, I brought a you know, church that I was preaching, and I was a friend, and, then, you know, because of whatever. And then my friend from Princeton, that young pastor, he said, when my mom was wishing me to have, a, you know, whatever, the skin spot cleaning, and he said, oh, Pastor Paul, before I came to this church, my previous church, they gave me parting gift as a, you know, the clean, you know, the dermatologist, you know, whatever gifts certificate. He ruined my, and so I had to go and then do it all. One time, do you see me, all the red faces, red spots on my face? But anyway, coming back. Looking good. Who doesn't like it? Right? Problem is, if that's the only thing and first thing that Bible tells about you, that is a warning sign. So Absalom had a physical attractiveness without a spiritual attribute. He was not known for wisdom, ethical integrity, generosity, or compassion. He is a simply guy with all the styles without substance. You know, cosmetics without characters. You know, this is a guy that makes a great first impression without any growing, you know, inspiration. You know, have you met a guy like that? You know, guy, you go out in the first date after first date, is that nothing else. 
just the exterior. That's all he is. You know, I know some people like that. You know. So he made a great first impression, but that's all. By the way, do you know who else in the writer of a book of Samuel prays for his physical you know, beauty? That's the Saul, the first king of Israel. If you look at the first Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, Kish had a son named Saul as a handsome a young man as he uh, could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone. King Saul was also tall and handsome, but as we know, he was not after God or God's heart. He was after human approvals and popularity. Once again, handsome body without wholesome heart is a warning sign. You know, Woodrow Crowe, the founder of a Back to the Bible a program in the radio, once said this, beauty without virtue is like a flower without fragrance. Beauty without virtue is a flower without fragrance. You know, such a superficial, superficial beauty is a warning sign. I think especially in America where we adore young and beautiful and we avoid the aging and old at any cost. It is especially a warning sign in our city, in Dallas, you know, because we are the one of the top five cities with the most plastic surgeons. If you're a plastic surgeon, you know, we have no problem. But just, just, <laughs> just saying it. Okay. But uh, on the topic of beauty, today I want us to really examine our view of beauty today. And the Helen Keller said beautiful word about beauty that the best and the most beautiful thing in the world cannot be seen or even touched, but they must be felt with a heart. True beauty is not something you see, but something you feel in your heart. I love that. True beauty moves not just our eyes, but ultimately our hearts. So true beauty is not just impressive, it's inspirational. Amen? It draws us. And then one more quote. You know, my favorite, one of my favorite, you know, actually my favorite uh, writer, Fyodor Dostoevsky, once is on, this to on topic of the beauty, he said this. Beauty is a mysterious as well as a terrible. God and devil are fighting there. The battlefield of a beauty is a heart of a man. He said, God and devil fight to death when it comes to beauty because a human heart seeks a beauty. Depends on what kind of beauty we seek, our life is either made or broken. So what is a beautiful to you? Let me ask you, what is a beautiful to you? What beauty inspires you and attracts you? What is the definition of a beautiful person to you? What kind of beautiful person you want to be? For me, those are forest shepherds and members who serve others sacrificially and kindly. They are the very beautiful and attractive people to me. You know, I pray, I try to pray for, I mean, actually, I, I try to pray for everyone, but there are some people, are actually, their, their kindness 
and their care for the people are so inspiring that uh, my, they, they, uh, they make my prayer voluntary and joyful. Have you had somebody in your life that God blessed that person, blessed this brother or sister? Don't you have those kind of person in your prayer? I hope you do. I do. One time at Baylor, my young professor named Pete Kendler, he, he's a, you know, he made a state, profound theological statement. I, I, you know, I never forget. Out of blue, I was taking a, a, a class on the Thomas Aquinas. Out of blue, he said, guys, do you know what is the most sexist thing? I mean, most sexist thing, most sexist, most sexy thing in the world? I said, what is the most sexy thing? You know, never heard the theologian talking about the term sexy or in the superlative, you know, term sexist, you know, most sexy, super sexy. And then he said, Christology. Christology is the most sexy thing out there. Person and work of Jesus Christ is so attractive, so attractive. And I agree. I read many books, and nothing is more attractive than our Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, about Jesus, look at the uh, Isaiah 53, 2. Isaiah 53, 2, I'm going to read a living Bible. My servant, that is Jesus, prophecy about Jesus, grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in the dry ground. He's trying to say he's not good looking. You know, plant out of a dry ground is a kind of very, I mean, it's really skinny. Not, not much to look at it. And there was a nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance and nothing to attract, him, attract us to him. Jesus, did you know, was not good looking? Whatever picture of Jesus you saw, the blonde hair and the blue eyes or brown hair, whatever, that is a, I mean, the white skin, <laughs> Nothing is, uh, you know, <laughs> farther than the, the truth. Jesus, in real life, in history, was a dark skin and crooked nose. I bet he's not good looking. Actually, he was a, he's doing a hard labor, like a carpenter. He was not an engineer. He was not a desk job. It was a hard work out there. As a result, he aged fast. So if you look at the John chapter 8, you know, John chapter 8, when Jesus made an incredible statement that before Abraham was, I was, I existed. And then Pharisees said, you look no more than 50 years old. Actually, Jesus was 30 years old. They, they saw him was 50 years old. That means he aged too fast. You know? Let me tell you, Jesus was not a head turner like uh, Absalom. He is a heart turner. He turns our heart. You know why? Jesus intentionally born as an ugly guy from Galilee to tell us true beauty is not here. True beauty comes from knowing God. When you know God, you become beautiful. Amen? You want to know more about this incredible incarnation? Take a Livingstone Bible study. Then you will learn. Now, our Lord was intentionally born, not as a handsome, but skinny, dark skin, fast aging, 
to show us the true beauty. Now, let me go to the second warning sign, which is a fire, which came out of Absalom's frustration. Look at the verse 28. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. So he was, uh, you know, frustrated. So he sent a messenger to Joab who, you know, who brought him to Jerusalem. But Joab wouldn't come. So what did Absalom do? He set the fire on Joab's, you know, barley field. And when Joab was upset, this is what Absalom said. Verse, you know, 32. Absalom said to Joab, look, I sent a word to you to come, but you didn't come. I asked to come to send you to king to ask, why have I come from Geshar, where he was exiled? It would be better for me if I was still there, and now then I want to see king's face, and if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. Absalom lived two full years of in Jerusalem without seeing king's face. And actually, the original Hebrew text is a two years of a days, two years of a days. So emphasizing that each day was a painfully long and dragging for Absalom. So Absalom was, a, you, know, uh, uh, you know, what is this? Absalom felt frustrated and also almost humiliated because of exclusion of any contact with his father. Do you guys remember last week I said the old Jerusalem was a small city? No, no better than two square, you know, uh, uh, two, uh, two square miles. So easily, you can bump into each other, you know. But he didn't see king for two years. That means king was avoiding. And actually, since he killed his, uh, you know, half-brother Amnon, Altogether is three years, right? Because he was exiled in Geshur for three years. He didn't see king for two years. Altogether five years. So Absalom was, uh, you know, very, very frustrated. And what did he do with the frustration? He intentionally set a fire in Joab's field, get his attention, and make him act on his behalf. Here we must see that Absalom was not just impatient, but indignant. He was indignant. You know, he was very indignant. And by the way, I think his popularity and boosted his ego. And the boosted ego always doesn't see the reality as it is. So Absalom was angry and self-righteous. And you should know the anger and self-righteousness, they are twins. Anger and self-righteousness, they always go together. Not all anger is bad. Some angers, like Jesus had toward those, you know, people exploding, you know, I mean, you know, exploding the, uh, taking advantage of the poor people in the temple, and the Jesus, do you guys remember, turned the tables? Those kind of angers is not bad. But uh, self-righteousness always bring up bad anger. Always bring up bad anger. And Billy Graham once said, hot head and cold heart never solve anything. And self-righteousness has a cold heart and a hot head. And the most telltale truth of this fire was that it reveals his ungrateful, unrepented heart. So look at the verse 32, what Absalom said. He was saying, the king, I need to see you. And the verse, said, what, what, verse 32 said, if I'm guilty of anything, 
Let king put me to death. I'm guilty of anything. Do you see how forgetful Absalom was to his own guilt? He forgot his deception and manipulation of the father and King David and his heartless order to assassinate his half-brother and crown prince Amnon. Now, after two years' frustration, Absalom was burning with self-righteous anger. He began to see himself as a victim, not a perpetrator. It was his murder, his scheme that created the whole chaos and that's why he was exiled, and that's why, you know, his father was, you know, couldn't see him. Now, he was blaming others. He was telling his father, you change. I'm good. You change. Instead of changing and repenting and humbling, he was asking his father to change. You know, one commentator knows the, how drastically different Absalom's return to the return of a prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. You know, it's a hard to think of a greater contrast than between Absalom and the prodigal son of Jesus' parable. The prodigal son came back humble and repentant. Absalom came back burning Joab's field. You know, self-righteous people, self-righteous people are generous, extremely understanding when it comes to their own mistakes and failures. But they are hypercritical to others' mistakes and failures. Just like the Pharisees that Jesus won in Matthew 7, they fail to see a log in their eyes, and they see specks and dirt in the eyes of other people. Self-righteous people have a huge blind spot and narrow vision, and that makes them very bitter every day, and finally Absalom exploded here. And this fire of a self-righteous anger or bitterness or frustration, guess what? Will not just burn the Joab's, you know, uh, barley field, but as you see later in chapter 15, it will burn the whole nation. Whole nation. And here is a difference. Important, you know, things that we have to remember. David and Absalom, they all committed, uh, you know, horrible sin, Right? Actually, David's sin is worse than Absalom's sin, right? David committed adultery and killed a woman's husband with a you know, first-degree premeditated murder. Absalom at least killed the rapist of his sister. But the difference is this. David repented. Absalom didn't repent. This is a how, why is a, you know, so Absalom's lack of repentance created bitterness, and that he is about to do worse things. So let me ask you. I'm so glad that uh, Nicole talked about, uh, you know, the fullness of the Holy Spirit with, uh, you know, forgiveness. True. Holy Spirit is, uh, you know, some of you know, in this, uh, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? The main work of the Holy Spirit is a fellowship. You know, most pastors at the end of a sermon, the Benedictor, Trinitarian Benedictory, grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the communion of fellowship of the Holy Spirit with you. Holy Spirit is a spirit of a fellowship and relationship. You cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit with bitterness or unforgiveness. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, are you holding any bitterness and anger towards someone or something these days. Do you feel you are victimized? 
Do you feel that God is not fair to you? The unholy fire of a self-righteous anger is a more harmful than this scorching sun of Texas. I really pray that you confess your frustration and anger to God and to each other in your house church. Now let me see the final warning sign quickly, the kiss. Verse 33, so uh, verse 33 tells us that the today's story actually ends with the success of Absalom's scheme. So Joab went to the king and told all this, and the king summoned Absalom. He came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Do you notice in this verse, David was portrayed not as a father, but as a king. Absalom came to not his father David, but the king three times. Absalom approached David not like a you know, son, but as a servant. And there was no weeping. It's strange. They haven't seen each other for five years. If you see your own child or brother and sister, first time in five years, wouldn't you, don't you think there will be emotional, you know, kind of, you know, emotional outburst or hug or anything, right? There was no conversation recorded at all. This was a very awkward meeting. Even the king's kiss looks more royal and official than paternal. The next episode in chapter 15 will show this resolution or official restoration of Absalom actually failed to satisfy his soul. And he comes up. Something else. Once again, David failed to be a good father. David longed for his son, but he did not love him with the truth and accountability. You know, if I were David, I mean, David should have kicked Absalom's butt before he kissed him, right? When he heard that Absalom said, if I'm done anything wrong, let the king, you know, whatever, punish me. If I were David, he said, what? What did he say? Didn't you forget you lied to me? Didn't you forget that you, you deceived us, you drunken us, you know, you made your, 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 your brother get drunken, and then did you, you know, kill him cold-heartedly? What are you talking about? Are you loose? David didn't do any. David should have disciplined Absalom with the truth in love. Instead, David chose a once again, there's a facade of reconciliation. Status quo of a royal family. David just uh, re restored Absalom formally, artificially, instead of revealing and his guilt, rebuking his sin, and then truly redeeming him for the right relationship. This gesture of a fake affection and superficial status quo paved painful way for more painful betrayal. In chapter 15, you know what happened next week? You will find out. You will see Absalom kissing all people of Israel and deceiving everyone so he can stage a coup against his father. He starts kissing everyone to steal his father's throne. So this kiss is the beginning of his devilish plan. What would David have done if he knew that this kiss is uh, nothing but a, uh, you know, fake? Does Absalom's kiss remind you about another kiss of a betrayal in the Bible? Does it? 
Yes, there was another king who was kissed with a deadly intent. Look at the Mark chapter 14, verse 43. Just as he was talking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared, and with him was a crowded crowd armed with a sword and clubs and sent from the chief priests and teachers of the law and elders. Now betrayer arranged the signal with them. The one I kiss is a man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him, and the man seized Jesus and arrested him. When Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, tried to, you know, sort of hand him over to the enemies, he knew the time was midnight and the Garden of Gethsemane, there are several other people, disciples and all others. So back then there was no flashlight, there was no, you know, smartphone to, you know. So he told those, you know, soldiers, arresting party, that I'm going to pinpoint Jesus with a kiss. The guy that I kissed, just get him. You don't have to worry about everybody else. Just get him. But unlike David, Jesus knew that was uh, Judah's plan. So look at the Luke chapter 22, 47. While Jesus was, uh, uh, while Je- uh, uh, he was still speaking, a crowd uh, speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying son of man with a kiss? Judas, are you betraying son of man with a kiss? Why did Jesus say that? Jesus wanted to, Judas is scared to know that he knew what he was doing. Jesus wanted to tell him that, I know what you're doing. Now, why did Jesus want to Judas to know that? Jesus tried to remind Judas Iscariot that what he told all the apostles in Matthew chapter 16, that when he went to Jerusalem, eventually he will be killed, and the third day he will be raised to life. So Jesus wanted to tell Judas Iscariot that I'm still in control. I know what you are doing. And Jesus was hoping, Judas, I'm not surprised. And I remember, I hope you remember my promise, my prediction, my prophecy. Then three days from now, I'll be back. Jesus wanted Judas to know that he is still in control. Even most painful betrayal, even most horrible, you know, sin. And here, I don't know about you. For me, this is a Jesus. He knows even our horrible mistake and sin, yet he is in control. Amen? And Jesus is the most beautiful of all because He knows how wicked we are, yet He loves us and receives us. He makes all self-centered, calculating, cowardly, ugly people and transforms them into all-serving, compassionate, committed, beautiful people. So today, I just want to tell you this. When you follow Jesus, 
you'll become a beautiful person that people will look for and appreciate. I don't know about you. Don't you want to be appreciated more than admired? I want to be someone to be appreciated and just admired. In my heart, I know I'm more beautiful than Absalom. You know why? I'm an heir of God in Jesus Christ. You know? I, not, I, do, I may not have a beautiful hair. I'm not taller than Absalom, whatever. But in Christ, I know how precious I am to God. And in Christ, now I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't seek any other beauty but beauty of Jesus' love. Amen? When you follow Jesus, you'll be beautiful. The older you become, the more beautiful you will become. The aging will not be curse word. Aging with Christ is a beautiful thing. Amen? No amen, huh? <laughs> wow! I want to ask last question. Are you becoming more beautiful every day? Are you beholding the beauty of Jesus who, who loved you and died for you? Today, you can receive Jesus into your heart. And he will make you beautiful. He is a Savior and the Lord who takes all the broken people and make a, create the beauty out of brokenness. Let's pray.